is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. to our slightly delayed episode 29 on Rita Cetina Gutierrez and we can only apologize for it being slightly delayed just life continues to be the way it is. Mm-hmm. We have big plans for hopefully getting back into a, a rhythm of episode releases but I feel very reluctant to make any promises yet. Um <laughs> So the world is still on fire. <laughs> the world is still on fire, and every time that I try to make a plan, my chronic pain goes, that was silly of you, wasn't it? So. Yeah. Yeah. My executive dysfunction has become so dysfunctional, it's like, what what executive function is there? Yeah. <laughs> <anymore>? Same. <laughs> yeah. So. Bad brain, bad body. Oh, we're trying. <sighs> we're trying. And excited to talk about Rita Satina Gutierrez. Um, as with many of our other episodes this season, we do have to issue some contact warnings. So, contact warnings for murder, particularly, I was going to say particularly unpleasant colonialism, but all colonialism is unpleasant. Mm-hmm. But colonial wars in, this, in particular. And this is a necessary preface. I literally found one English language article concerning Satina Gutierrez, and that was Wikipedia. Um, and I do not speak Spanish, so... This is what we could make of with um, online translation. Yeah. So if you're listening out there and you are a scholar of 19th century Mexican feminism and maybe want to come talk to us about Rita Satina Gutierrez, then please reach out because, yeah, my smattering of Spanish is not good enough to uh, engage with any biographical or scholarly works, sadly. Yes, and I think, I hope listeners will feel the same at the end of this, but as always, I just want to know more after what research I was able to do. Yeah, and at the top, let's also just call out, uh, thank you so much, Eleanor, for taking the lead on the research for this episode, because I have been doing... You have a lot going on. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I Yeah, I have chronic issues of over-committing myself. Very relatable. So should we take a quick trip around the world in Rita Cetina Gutierrez's lifetime? On January 1st, 1846, Yucatan declares independence from Mexico after a temporary return to Mexico. In 1847, Ignaz Semmelweis proposes handwashing as a way to stop the spread of diseases. Woo. In 1856, Neanderthal man was first identified. In 1860, the Pony Express started. In 1863, the first section of the London Underground opened. From 1868 to 1878, the Ten Years' War raged between Cuba and Spain. In 1871, the feudal system is dismantled in Japan. In 1877, the Great Railroad Strike took place in the United States and may have been the world's first nationwide labour strike. 
From 1881 to 1882, the Jules Ferry Laws were passed in France, establishing free, secular education. In 1884, the first electric car was produced by Thomas Parker in Wolverhampton. 1889 marked the end of the Brazilian Empire and the beginning of the Brazilian Republic. In 1891, basketball was invented by Canadian-American gym teacher James Naismith. In 1896, the Philippine Revolution ended. The Philippines were declared free from Spanish rule. From 1898 to 1902, the Thousand Days War in Colombia breaks out, and that's between the Liberales and the Conservadores, and that culminates in the loss of Panama in 1903. On the 18th of November 1903, Panama achieved independence with the signing of the Hay Bunao Varia Treaty、uh, by the United States and Panama. From the 15th to the 16th of March 1907, elections to the new Parliament of Finland were held, and those are the first in the world with female candidates, as well as the first elections in Europe where universal suffrage is applied. I wanted to kind of sprinkle in, you know, some gestures towards revolution and the end of some colonial powers, and also some, and you know, women in education, which is. A big theme in this episode, and also some fun stuff like basketball. Yeah, some of these、uh, some of these events are kind of striking me interestingly right now because I just finished Gods of Jade and Shadow by Silvia Moreno Garcia, which is set in Yucatan、um, at about this time period. It's really really great. I, we don't usually recommend fiction books as like a part of our episode, but I love everything that Silvia Moreno Garcia writes.、Um, so highly recommend that. That sounds like a great companion piece to this episode as well. Yeah. And it is very much about like being a woman in this time period. So, speaking of Yucatan, on May twenty second, eighteen forty six, Rita Cetina Gutierrez is born in Merida, the capital of Yucatan in Mexico. And to try and give a probably poor description because geography has never been my strong suit, but it's on the northern end of the peninsula that kind of points up to the Gulf at the southeast. That- I can't think of a better way to describe it, but I wanted to give some indication. It's kind of separate from the majority of Mexico, which I think is important.、Mm-hmm. Her parents were Colonel Pedro Cetina and Jacoba Gutierrez. In the same year as her birth, the first public school for girls was established in the city. Two years later, her sister Guadalupe was born. So Rita seems to have been sent to small private schools, where, according to Piedad Peniche Rivero, she was distinguished by her application and intelligence. Through this schooling and her own effort, she was able to read at a very young age. And we need to kind of not to stop our story in its tracks so early on, but we do need to cover some political context to make sense of Rita's life, and just a flagging up front. This is an extremely brief explanation of a very complicated issue, but some kind of overview is necessary, I think. So, Yucatan was, as we gestured to in the around the world, a site of particular unrest during the mid nineteenth century. So, Mexico gained independence from Spain in eighteen twenty one, and Yucatan was briefly independent from Mexico for just over six months in eighteen twenty three. Yucatan then declared independence again in eighteen forty one. And this led to conflict with the central Mexican state, and then, except for a brief return to Mexico between December eighteen forty three and February eighteen forty four, Yucatan remained its own republic until eighteen forty eight. 
And in addition to this conflict with Mexico, there was war within Yucatan as well. The Mayan people of Yucatan rebelled against the descendants of Spanish colonizers. Uh, in many ways, their story is typical of the relation between colonized and colonizers. The Mayan people experienced higher rates of poverty, performed much of the actual work, and were systematically oppressed by those in power. The case war continued on and off for decades, from 1847 to 1915, though if you, like me, studied Southwestern literature and indigenous feminist theory in undergrad, you'll know that it continues to this day, um, with mestizo peoples being particularly sort of looked down upon in case systems. And as often is the case, there's a, a big religious component to this as well with kind of the Catholic colonizing force trying to mm-hmm. quash native culture and religious practices. Yeah, the 1915 is kind of an arbitrary cutoff point for yeah maybe much of the formalized fighting, but it doesn't mean it actually stopped. Yeah. Yeah, no, I grew up in New Mexico, and you would occasionally hear somebody say that they were of Spanish descent, like pure Spanish descent, pretty proudly. Um, So it's still a thing that, yeah, Mm. unfortunately. Yeah, so Rita's family was closely connected to the war. Her father held two political offices, including as political chief of Merida in 1858. Um. And that's possibly a clumsy translation, but it gets the idea across. Mm. Um, Her father was actually murdered when Rita was 14. And one of the sources that I read did seem to indicate that he was killed during the Caste War. That's not confirmed, but it definitely seems more than plausible. Mm. Her uncle, Colonel Jose Dolores Satina, fought in the war and seems to have distinguished himself in his role. Rita's writing, which we will discuss later, touches on this conflict and is marked by patriotism. So according to Panish, the circumstances of Rita's birth within a family of officials linked to the military and power, and the very fact of her liberal upbringing led her to share the sense of honour of men together with racism and strong intolerance, as her epic poetry resonates with the clichés of the indigenous rebels wishing to exterminate the Hispanic people of Yucatan. So it is the age-old story of one of us is going to exterminate the other and we need to be the group that exterminates the other group in order to survive, which is mm. not the best logic. But. Yeah. But I mean, it's what, like, colonial systems are built yeah. to pit the, um, colonized peoples against one another. Absolutely. So after her father's death, Rita was left in the care of Domingo Loriano Paz. And it's unclear what happened to her mother. Um... But this sort of guardian and our transferring guardianship gave her access to a large library and the best education that was possible for her. Yeah, so in 1860, she begins to write poetry. And sometimes she signs this as Christabella. Sometimes she uses her own name. And as I kind of touched on earlier, her poetry has three main themes. So patriotism and the glory of one's countries and the heroes, science, progress and education, and finally love, the joy of home and the beauty of the universe. In May of 1870, 
Rita established a literary magazine in school called uh, La Siempre Viva with a group of friends. And on the 4th of June in 1870, this was expanded to include a literary and charitable society. She was president at the age of 24, and her sister Guadalupe served as treasurer. Among the others involved were the heads of different branches of the society. The magazine was headed by 24-year-old Cristina Farfan, the charitable branch by the 27-year-old Gertrudis Tenorio Zavala, and a branch for activism by Sinception Rivas. So it's probably easier to look at the different branches in turn. Taking the magazine, the magazine of the same name, La Siempre Viva, first appeared on the 7th of May 1870 and was published fortnightly. It was the first in the country written entirely by women, and its content focused on education, the arts, women's rights, and politics. And it's important to note that until then, that had been a strictly male sphere. I get the sense even more in Mexico than in Britain or the US. So, for instance, it published articles about women entering the workforce as telegraphers in Russia or doctors in the United States. And Panish makes an important point here that I think is really worth sharing they're giving these stories about women entering professional life but working class women have always been part of the workforce so this is kind of Mm. a big step for middle class and upper class women but working class women have always had to work Mm -hmm. the magazine was supported by manuel serrero Icanto, the governor he gave the editors access to a government printing press and may actually have provided the paper that it was printed on so that's a huge show of support Wow. And the magazine did sell well, but it seems to have operated with quite a narrow margin. So it needed this official support. It probably wouldn't have survived without it. In 1872, General Francisco Canton Rosado staged a coup in Yucatan, and that meant that the magazine had to close. The school, on the other hand, benefited from an 1873 law requiring all free educational establishments to receive public funding. Combined with the fact that the teachers didn't seem to be paid, it was able to continue after the closure of the magazine. Yeah, so it had fewer expenses. Yeah. So at the time of the school's founding, 60 students were involved. Their courses included reading, writing, sewing, grammar, and arithmetic. More advanced students could also take classes on geometry, geography, constitutional law, astronomy, music, and public speaking. And these were taught by the three founders, so Rita, her sister Guadalupe, and Adelaida, who I don't think we mentioned, but she was one of the other founders. The school continued to expand, and by 1877, there were 218 students. Wow. On August 24th of 1877, the Girls Literary Institute was founded by Governor Manuel Cepeda Peraza. Satina was asked to become its director. She agreed and delivered a speech at the official opening on September 16th, where she promised to do her duties, quote, as accurately as possible in the delicate and thorny assignment that had been conferred upon her, end quote. The school offered both secondary education and teacher training. In order to be admitted, pupils had to be at least 10. They had to be able to read, write, and understand arithmetic and needed to be... Um, basically recommended by the head of their neighborhood. So the courses offered included Latin, 
French, gymnastics, philosophy, geometry, and, as you might expect from a literary institute, literature. Scholarships for poor pupils were introduced sometime later, and the first teachers to graduate from the institute uh, made their way into the workforce in 1886. So the La Siempre Viva School, which I now realize is a little bit like saying the Los Angeles Angels because it's a little bit redundant, but the La Siempre Viva School didn't close while Rita was working elsewhere. It seems to have remained open, operating as a private school, until it merged with the Girls' Literary Institute in 1886. In 1877, the government introduced exams and accreditation for teachers in an effort to professionalize teaching. Rita became one of the first teachers to undergo these exams and obtained the title of Teacher of Primary and Higher Education. A Cuban professor, Felix Ramos Duarte, had her taken under his wing and apparently helped her prepare for the exam. Rita directed the Girls' Literary Institute for 18 years in total from 1877 to 1879, and then from 1886 to 1902. I couldn't find out quite why, but Rita resigned along with some of her fellow teachers on March the 1st, 1879, and it seems that this resignation might not have entirely been her own decision. Panish speculates that it may have been related to the founding of a rival, quote, normal school, which obviously we've encountered before, and that does mean generally teacher training school, by a group of men who had just expected to be able to be in control of the Girls' Institute, because why wouldn't they just be allowed to take control? <laughs> so this little kerfuffle involves three schools, from what I could tell, and it ended up with the Girls' Institute absorbing at least one of the others. But in that happening, Rita was replaced by the head of that now defunct school, who was, I believe, a German teacher. There's also a suggestion that the resignations may have been prompted by the governor being a little too heavy-handed and possibly not paying teachers their salaries. So we mentioned earlier that they weren't paid at La Siempre Viva School and at the Girls' Institute they expected to be paid, but they were not. They did not receive their salaries, possibly for as long as three months. So there's a letter from Rita that suggests that between them, teachers were owed $674 which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but I went ahead and looked up that as a relative income worth on measuring worth, and that is between $148,000 and $256,000 that they were owed. So wow, you can see why they were upset. <laughs> and she basically seems to have been brushed off and told that while she and her colleagues were in fact owed this money, paying them would put the school's finances in serious jeopardy. And they might get paid in future if it was convenient to the school, which is super great working conditions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this theory seems to involve Rita being forced to resign because her request to be paid what she's owed was seen as an overstep. The one thing that remains the same between both versions is that Rita was ousted so that a German teacher could be installed in her place. So it seems like following her departure from the Girls' Institute, Rita and her colleagues reopened the La Siempre Viva school. So we just mentioned that it was sort of combined into the Girls' Institute. Um, maybe it's like bought out or something. Mm. And then, or maybe they just closed it and told all the pupils to come over because they're already like the same people running both places. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, it seems like they busted it back out. <laughs> it's a standalone school. Uh, because why not, right? 
and 80 young women from all social classes were enrolled, including many who transferred away from the Girls' Institute. So that's kind of a power move. Yeah, take them away with you. Yeah, yeah. So Rita never married, but a record from 1880 shows that she did adopt a child, a son, Almilcar Satina Gutierrez. Way to go for, like, deciding you want a child, like, solo in the 1880s. That's, like, wow. Yeah, I couldn't find any more about Um, him, but very cool to just adopt a child on your own. Part of me wonders if there's any, like female companions in the wings somewhere Hmm. that you know i mean i don't know maybe she just did want a parent by herself who knows but this is totally speculation let's go back to the (laughs) facts that we have which skip six years um (laughs) so in october of 1886 rita resumed her leadership of the girls literary institute and la siempre viva school merged uh with the institute once more there were a lot of political issues around what was taught That's not something we hear about at all these days, including women being offered inferior training to their male counterparts, leading them to be seen as inferior to male teachers and less likely to get jobs or progress if they were able to find employment. It's so nice that we haven't heard of that since 1886. So nice that that went away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is also why it took so long for the first students from the Institute to graduate. Any teaching that bordered on sexuality or sexual anatomy was particularly suppressed. I'm just having flashbacks to growing up in the Bible Belt in the United States. Like, geez, geez, geez. It is depressing. Um, yeah, to give the German teacher her due, like, I think she got caught up in politics and she can't really necessarily be blamed for all this. But one thing that she did introduce was yeah. essentially sexual education, which the people in charge did not like. And that may have led to her mm-hmm. getting taken away from the job that she was kind of parachuted into. Yeah, it seems like they tried to get rid of any of, of, any of her kind of progressive um, curriculum. Mm. On September 16th, 1888, a library was opened at the school comprising 300 volumes, some of which had been brought from Paris, which is a fun little detail. Yeah. This was actually the first library for women in Yucatan. The Institute opened a dressmaking school in addition to academies of drawing and music. And the school at this point had 250 students. 49 of these were boarders, so they stayed at the school as well as, you know, in the evenings, as well as studying there in the day. And 24 Mm. of those boarding students received a scholarship. So just under half. Wow, yeah. Rita continued to have difficulties with politicians trying to control what was taught in school. Again, so glad that has stopped. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's particular pressure around the teaching of natural sciences, rhetoric, and pedagogy, which is very helpful in a teaching school. <laughs> so, as Courtney mentioned earlier, the suppression of these subjects made it difficult for students to graduate, and if they did graduate, to find work as teachers. But Rita found a solution. You see, they taught French, and that wasn't really a sought-after school for teachers in Yucatan. So... While they were supposed to be teaching the students French, Rita suggested that they just teach the banned subjects during that time and not oh. really tell anyone about that. That's genius. Such a, such a cool move. Who needs French? <laughs> right. I mean, French is another colonizing language, right? Like, especially 
Um, sorry. No, it's so much. <laughs> I'm just going to go off on all these tangents today. It's so much more useful to know about your own anatomy than a language that is taught primarily by people who live thousands of miles away. Yeah, it seems like I do not want to bring Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but there is a hierarchy of needs at play here. Mm-hmm. Um, not that, not that one, but <laughs> a much more direct one of like, yes, learn about the things that you need to like take control of your own life. That that seems like a yeah an important thing to happen. So these sort of banned classes were reinstituted by June of 1901, but this would be Rita's final fight, and they were by no means secure. Rita retired due to illness in 1902 after 16 years at the institute. The school had 550 students at the time of her retirement, and her successor, Maria Luisa Aldez, seems to have continued Rita's resistance. On the 11th of October 1908, Rita died in poverty. She did not receive anything like a pension after her retirement. The closest she got was that in 1905, the governor, Olegario Molina, guaranteed her a one-off relief of 100 pesos, which she had to go and collect herself just to add insult to injury. After her death, a day of mourning was observed in public schools in the area. In 1919, Elvia Carrillo Puerto founded a feminist and suffrage league and named it after Rita. There's a primary school named after her in Merida, a secondary school in Chablacal, and in a move that seems a little bit weird, a police station in Merida is also named after her. Yeah. So I... I wish reading about Rita and how interesting and like even just that French move speaks so much to me. I wish I'd been able to find more information because mm-hmm. I looked and there were several articles I found, but they were mostly rehashing the same points and very interesting points, but so much of it focused on her teaching. I would have lo- loved to know more about her life and that kid that she adopted. Mm-hmm. Where is he now? Mm-hmm. But- well, he's dead because he was adopted in 1880. But um, sorry, late night, bad brain thoughts. But I don't know what I'm trying to say. But it just sucks that I couldn't find that much. And this is what I could find and wanted to share with people. Yeah. And I would love it if someone does happen to know more about her to talk to such a person, should they exist. It makes me really frustrated because, like, she's clearly the sort of foundational kind of feminist figure even if maybe she wouldn't have considered herself a feminist right yeah but like when we learn about feminism at least in college slash grad school in a western context we learn about the french british and u.s schools of feminism Mm -hmm. as if there are no others (laughs) and if you study like i can't i'm blinking on the term but if you study like southwestern literature and you're like up on the theory there then you get to read something like Gloria Anzadua or Anna Castillo and that sort of very southwestern indigenous feminist perspective but that's not taught necessarily in like these well like intro to theory or intro to feminist theory kind of contexts ever yeah there's such a like at least I can only speak for my own like university education but there's such a divide of it's like oh, you read your post-colonial theory all lit and that's mm-hmm. nine times out of ten men and then you read your feminism and that's nine times out of ten white women and it's like, you know, there are people who exist yeah. who... And 
even as we're speaking, like, she has this dual experience of, like, she's a Hispanic woman, which like, puts her in a certain position in society as compared to white people. But then she has an entirely different experience compared to Mayan people. Right. So this sort of intersectional perspective, right? And mm, That was the most articulate thing I've ever said, but... Worst. We're doing our best today, friends. We're doing our best. <laughs> So I mentioned earlier that we might talk a little bit about her writing. Um, <laughs> the best I could do is um, I found one of her poems. I couldn't find any of her work that's actually been translated into English. So if someone mm -hmm. is a Spanish to English translator looking for work, I think you could do worse than translating some of these better than I can with my trusty friend Google Translate. <laughs> So we'll post the Spanish language version of this poem in our show notes, I think. But if we kind of yeah. do the slightly garbled translated version. This is a poem called Tre de Marzo. It is dedicated to Manuel Cepeda Parazza, a Yucatecan liberal hero. So it reads in our yeah robot translated version. Already Cepeda, the illustrious man, bequeathed to us freedom and science, sources of happiness and peace, consecrates with noble desire to eternalize his glory to his beloved memory, songs of happiness. Listen, his august name echoes everywhere. All the Yucatecan people honor the liberator today. And in sweet and heartfelt troves, the girls of the Institute also pay him a tribute of gratitude and love. I feel like that's not necessarily doing her justice, but I would want to read a version that is accessible to English speakers of one of her poems. Yeah. I feel like I've just done a lot of apologising this episode, but what can you do? I feel like we are like the living example that archive fever is a dirty lie. <laughs> or like, you get it? You want this perfect whole story to emerge you don't always get that because maybe you don't have access to the right collections or maybe they're in a language you don't speak or maybe the records don't exist anymore wasted all that time learning french thank you for coming along with us on this somewhat at times erratic journey we will share all of the sources that we could find in the show notes and hopefully you can Find more information from them. If anyone is a Spanish speaker, you might make more more sense of them than I did, which I really hope you do, because they do seem like fantastic resources that just weren't quite accessible to me. And we'll also share that poem in its original Spanish. So if you're a Spanish speaker, you can enjoy the true excellence of that poem rather than the possibly speculatively translated version. Yes. So we are going to close out the year and the season, finally, the season has been like a year and a half long with our annual winter episode, which we're just going to let be a surprise. That doesn't mean we won't be covering more scribblers of color in the future, but we're just calling season four. It's a wrap on season four. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this also kind of erratic, but extremely important, I think, and invigorating journey the erratic bit was our publishing schedule um 
Well, and as yeah. trying to survive and still do this through a global pandemic. And I do feel sad that yeah. the season yeah. happened to be the one that fell during that. But like you said, yeah. this is not a one and done, our only shot to cover Scribblers of Colour, of course. And we'll keep asking our questions on yeah. what Victorian actually is and whether that's even a word that we should be using. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. just to really flag that we're not stopping just because the season is stopping. No. We are we're gonna be coming back strong next year, I think. But I am just going to leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Sort of tease you with a very vague amount of detail. Maybe we'll drop a little bit more in our Christmas episode. Thank you for listening, everyone. Yeah, thank you for listening and chatting with us on Twitter and all sorts of all of your engagements really mean a lot. So thank you for that as well. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com slash support us to donate. All of the music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons attribution licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. 